All right, guys, we are going to start the letter to Ephesus today. We're only going to look at two verses. You're saying, wow, 40 minutes on two verses. Well, we're going to spend some time on the two verses, but before we begin there, we're going to talk about how to read epistles, okay, or letters. Uh, because the reality is, is when you are reading the Bible and you're reading the various books of the Bible, there are different things you need to be aware of as you're in a book. So, for instance, would, every, would everyone here agree that when you read the Psalms, the Psalms seem different than when you read the book of Revelation? Okay? The book of Revelation seems different than when you read the Gospels right? When you read the Gospels, it's a whole lot different than Leviticus, right? Have you ever tried to read Leviticus? Yes, okay. Now, every book is its own type, and because it's its own type, there is a manner in which you are to approach the Scripture and get the most out of it. So we're going to talk to you today about how we're going to approach Ephesus. But before that, I don't want you to be personal but I just want you to be general. How do we typically read our Bibles? When, when we decide we're going to read our Bibles, how do we typically read it? Anybody want to share? How do you typically read a Bible? If you don't want to say it's you, you could say, I think some people do it this way. I, I don't care. I just want to know how do, you, how do you read your Bibles? How do you approach it? Lori. Okay, be honest, br brutally honest, she said. Okay, so it's a check mark to you, so you would say, I need to read this many verses or this many chapters today. I mean, how, what kind of, how brutally honest do you want to be? Okay, so it, would it vary from day to day? Okay, so some days you're only good for a verse? No, I'm just kidding, okay. All right, so... Okay, so Tim, all right, so you would say some days I would just read a verse, if, some days nothing because of the way the day goes, some days it's a chapter, okay? Okay, some days it's the whole Old Testament? Okay, okay, all right. All right, anybody else? How, how do you approach it? Okay, so you read a devotion and the scriptures that go with the devotion, okay? Anybody else? Sue? As a textbook, okay. Trying to get the facts, okay. All right. All right, so thanks for the honesty and sharing about how you, how you approach it and read it and so forth. Now, let me ask you a question. When you're reading it, do you try to, to understand it in terms of today or some other time? How, how do you look, read it? Do you read it? in terms of this is what it means to me today, or this is what the text means, or, or this is, how, how do you approach it? Do you understand what I'm asking? Uh, maybe you can be honest about that. Okay. Okay, so what you're saying is you try to put it in today's aspects, but you know that it's not necessarily gonna do that, okay. All right, okay, that's, that's honest, Tim. Anybody else? Bruce. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah, what to do when your ox falls in a hole. All right. Anybody else? Okay. Yeah, Sue. Okay, so Sue's saying, I don't know what the culture was then, so I don't know how to apply it to the culture today is what you're asking. Okay. All right, good. Anybody else got a comment or a thought before I move on and we'll talk about this a little bit? Because I'm going to help you. Because... All of your answers are not wrong answers. That's typically how people approach the scriptures. And, but there actually is a little bit more to it, okay? There, there's, there's a little bit more to understanding what's going on, okay? So let me help you to understand, okay? So let's, first of all, let's talk about the nature of the epistles. The Bible uses the word epistle. That comes from our English translators back in the 14th, 15th century, uh, they referred to it as epistles. An epistle was basically a letter, okay? So these are letters that we're going to talk about here. So first thing, the New Testament is made up of four types of books. So I need you to understand when we're looking at just, we're talking about the New Testament now. We've got four types of books in the New Testament. Each book is a different, fits into one of these four types, which means they have a, perp a different purpose in why they're written. So you kind of need to understand that as you're reading them, okay? So you wouldn't want to, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. The Gospels, okay, so that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's the first type. Historical books, which there's only one in the New Testament, there are several in the uh, Old Testament, but there's one in the New Testament, that's Acts. There's an apocalyptic book, or a prophetic book, but apocalyptic means referring to the, to, the, to the things of the end. That's the book of Revelation. And then the epistles, okay? The epistles. Now, each type of book varies in its purpose and its structure. So when you look at a, an epistle, let's say most of the epistles from Paul, it says, Paul, you know, with somebody to... The church at, let's say if he was writing here, the church in Kerwinsville, okay? That's how he typically starts out and has a structure. He starts out then with a time of praise, praising God for something, and then he gets right into the main body of what he's talking about. All the epistles follow that ancient format. Now, even among the epistles, there's a little bit of a difference there. We'll see in a moment here as well. But that's a little bit different than how the gospels start out or even the historical book, like Acts, okay? So each book varies in its purpose and its structure. So the difference in types requires approaching the book based on its type. So when I read an epistle, I'm not going to read it the same way that I would read the book of Acts, okay? When I read an apocalyptic book like Revelation, I'm not going to read it like I would an epistle. Now, I'm going to explain the differences here in a moment. So you have to change the way in which you approach things. Now, most of us, we've already admitted, we just kind of open up and read it and say, God, speak to me. But if you're going to understand what is being said and how it means something to you, you need to understand what type of book that it is. So... 
The epistles can be divided into two groups. So when you look at the epistles, there are two groups of epistles. First of all, there are the epistles of Paul. There are 13 letters from Paul. And then there are the general epistles. Now, who would they be from? First, second, Peter, Hebrews, Jude, James. Those are the general epistles, okay? And they're written by somebody other than Paul. Now, there is a debate today about Hebrews being written by Paul. I don't believe it was written by Paul. I think it was written by somebody who was a contemporary of Paul. It, the structure of how the book flows and everything isn't typically like Paul would do it, but it is Pauline. A lot of the things that are being said there are reflective of being influenced by Paul. So the epistles are not consistent and uniform. So even though they follow a simple like with the epistles, they follow this format that's similar to all of them. They're not necessarily consistent. Sometimes you'll have an epistle, and it doesn't say who it's from. Hebrews is like that. Okay? So, or it doesn't have a praise section in the beginning. Hebrews is like that again. So a lot of the epistles follow a certain format, but they're not necessarily consistent or uniform. Epistles were intended for a specific occasion. So when you read an epistle, here's what I would suggest you do. When you guys, okay, let's say you're going to go home today and you're going to say, all right, we're doing Ephesians. I'm going to read Ephesians. Okay, good. Read Ephesians five times. Why? Get an understanding of what he's addressing. And as you read it five times, you'll begin to understand what's the specific occasion that Paul's writing to. So then you realize that what Paul's writing about or doing is with reference to this single issue. I'm not going to go to Ephesians and look at some of the other issues that are mentioned in other books. I'm going to go to Ephesians and look at the issue that Ephesians is addressing. Do you understand? All right? So it's intended for a specific occasion. The occasion of the epistle must be taken seriously. That text is not going to mean anything unless it is with, with reference to that specific occasion. You can't make it into something else. And that's what we do a lot in Christian circles. We make it into something else sometimes. And we don't need to do that. All right? So... For instance, uh, in the, uh, I just did a new podcast on finding clarity, answering the question, uh, how does the Spirit intercede for us? Okay? How does the Spirit intercede for us? And so it's from Romans chapter 8, verse 26, where it says that we don't know how to pray, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Now, there are some in charismatic circles, Pentecostal circles, that would say, oh, here it's talking about tongues. And that's what they'll do. They'll say it's about tongues. Well, that's not what it's about. Actually, in just five verses, from verse 22 down to 26, Paul mentions groaning three times. He mentions about the world groaning for the day of redemption when the curse will be lifted. He mentions about us as believers groaning for our full redemption when we go to be with Jesus. 
And then he mentions about the Holy Spirit groaning for us as it prays for us because of the difficulty that we go in. Now, in all three instances, the same word is being used. And what's the context? It's, it's, it's about the travail of the person who's groaning for something, eager for something to happen. So it's talking about the Spirit being groaning for us, eager for us. Okay? Similar thing, parallel passage, go over to John chapter 11, when Jesus is at the, is at the grave of Lazarus and he's getting ready to raise him from the dead, it says there that he what? Groaned in his spirit. Okay? Similar thing. Now, here's the thing. So the occasion has to be taken seriously. You can't just take a verse and make it into something it's not saying, which is what they were doing in that instance. Okay? So, epistles are not necessarily theological treatises. They're not necessarily a theological treatise. Now, some people want to make them into this theological doctrinal thing, but that's not necessarily so, because a lot of times, for instance, in some of the epistles of Paul, he's telling them what to do in certain instances. They're instructional. Maybe there's a theological truth there, but it would coincide with other theological truths throughout the Scripture, okay? So... The epistles are not necessarily theological treatises. Now, some of them are close, like Hebrews, okay? And here's the bottom line. The text cannot mean what it was never meant to its author or readers. Do you understand what I'm saying? The fact is, that text that you're reading can only mean what it meant to the original readers and what it meant to us. Do you understand? There's no hidden meaning there. That somehow, 2,000 years later, we finally understand that verse. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's got to mean the same thing for the people who were reading it and even writing it as it means to us today, okay? So where we share similar life situations with the first century church, God's word is the same for us. So where we share similar situations with the first century church, God's word is the same for us. So for instance, all right, I know today we like to look at things, we look at the issue of slavery in terms of slavery in the United States during the uh, beginning of our country up to the mid-19th century. But when we talk about slavery in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, it is completely different. Now, it's brutal, but it's completely different. Why? The Roman Empire was primarily made up of slaves. There were very few freed people. And slaves were most of the community. Why? Slaves were the people who were conquered. If, if Rome went in and conquered a country, they would make everybody a slave. Do you understand? And then you gained your freedom through other ways. Or you were born into it. Paul was born a freed man. Okay? So you have to think in terms of what did it mean in that context. Don't look at it through the lens of how we see slavery today. Now, when we read through Ephesians, which we're going to do as we get through this lesson, we're going to come to Paul's instructions concerning masters and slaves. That is a first century issue. 
That's not a 20th century issue, is it? A 21st century issue. No, it's not. But there are some things we can learn from that. The closest thing we have to that context is the employer-employee relationship. Yeah, my boss, and he thinks I'm a slave. Yeah, I understand that, but that's not necessarily true, right? But the fact is, is you can see some principles there that you can gain from it, but that's about as close as we're going to get to what it meant, okay? You have to look at it from the context. So where we share similar situations in the first century church, the word, God's word is the same for us now. Okay, so let's go on. All right, so let's talk about this letter. So let's talk about the purpose, all right? We're going to look at the purpose of Ephesians and help us to understand. But before I do that, everybody understand those basic rules? The text cannot mean something different than what it meant to the author or so forth. Everybody agree with that? Understand that? And uh, we sh where we share similar situations. Anybody got a question? Okay. All right, so let's get into it. Let's talk about Ephesians. So the letter was written in AD 61 while Paul was imprisoned in Rome under house arrest. So this is when he is imprisoned in Rome. So he's writing this letter. Uh, Paul does not deal with any known problems or issues in the letter. When you go to Corinthians, there's a lot of problems he's addressing in the Corinthian letter. Would everybody agree with that? Okay, a lot of problems going on there in the Corinthian church. When we look at the Ephesian church in his letter to, the, to Ephesus, he's not dealing with any problems here. So the, the occasion isn't to deal with problems, okay? The purpose of the letter was to strengthen believers by explaining the nature of the church. So what he's wanting to do here is he wants to explain what the church is and how the church functions, and he's going to strengthen them, okay? He wants to strengthen them as he does that, all right? So he wants to strengthen the believers in this area. So he explains the nature of the church by presenting God's overall design for it. So he's going to explain in this letter what the overall design of the church is. Now, when we talk about church here, I need you to understand we're not, we can sometimes refer to a local body of believers, which is what this is, a local body of believers, but Paul's also going to refer to the church as the church universal, okay? The church universal, which is every believer in the world is a part of what? The church, okay? Now, the early church referred to that as the Catholic church. Now, stop for a moment. Before, what? No. Catholic with a small c. Catholic was a term that was used, small c, meaning universal. Now, we have a Catholic church with a big C that has an even more of a denomer. It's a Roman Catholic church, okay? That was a part of the church that was the Western church. We can get into history later, which they saw themselves as primary under the Pope. But there are still other ancient churches in the East, the Orthodox, the Coptic churches, and so forth, but in the first century, they were all seen as what? Small C, Catholic, universal church. So he talked about local, as far as local bodies of believers, 
but also the one group of churches, okay? But who's the head of the one group? Who's the guy in charge of the one group? Just so we make sure we understand here. Jesus is the head of the church. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, so let's, let's move on. All right, now here is, Paul also sought to relay practical demands of, the Christ, of, of, of Christians living in this world. He also wanted to convey or relay what does it mean practically to be a Christian in this world? So he's going to talk about the church, but when we get to the latter half of Ephesians, he's going to give you some practical instructions about how you're supposed to how you're supposed to be as a Christian in this world, okay? So let's give a basic outline here. So if we're going to talk about how we divide up Ephesians. It really can be divided up into two big parts, okay? So there, the first part is doctrinal instruction concerning the Christian faith, which is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 21. So when you look at the first three chapters, they are going to be doctrinal teaching. He's going to give you some teaching about the church, about God, and about your salvation, and, and so forth, okay? It is from Ephesians chapter 2 that you understand your salvation, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for by faith are you saved? Not of works, right? But by faith. You know, lest any man should boast. The second part is practical instruction concerning the Christian life, which would be Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 24. So he's going to go into practical instructions. When we get to chapter 4, he's going to talk about the purpose of pastors in a church. He's going to talk about... Uh, other people's roles in the church. He's going to talk about how we're to function in relationships, you know, parent-child, marriage relationships, slave-master relationships. We get to chapter 6. He's going to talk about the spiritual warfare that we're in. All of it is practical instructions that we're going to be looking at that Paul wants to convey to the Ephesians and ultimately to us, okay? And so let's take a look here. You'll have in your, on your page there a map so this is Asia Minor, okay? So, first of all, this right here, what we know of as modern-day Turkey, during the time of Paul, was called Asia Minor. Okay, so this is Asia Minor. Of course, down here is Jerusalem. This is uh, Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. Of course, this, of course, would be going up into Lebanon, Antioch, and so forth. Now, Ephesus was a port city, a major port city on the Aegean Sea, and so it was also the site of Artemis. Who's Artemis? It's the great goddess Artemis. Everybody from all over the known world would come and worship Artemis. In fact, they would go and they would buy little Artemises to wear around their neck and so forth, Artemis was the great goddess. Who is Artemis? Well, how, how about if I give you the Roman god name? That's the Greek god. The Roman god name is Diana. The goddess of what? 
How about another Roman name? Venus, the goddess of what? Guys, you lead sheltered lives. Nobody has been reading their, remember high school? Venus is the goddess. Mars is the god of war. Venus is the god of what? Love, not peace, bro. Love, okay? Love, all right? So Artemis was the god of love. Or here's a better way. She was a fertility god. So you would come and see Artemis if you wanted to have babies or you wanted your cattle to be productive. Do you understand what I'm saying? So you would go and make, you know, because in a, it's an agrarian culture. Most of the gods, okay, let, let me just kind of fill you in. So most of the gods that the Jews got in trouble with down here in Israel, the Canaanite gods, most of them were fertility gods. Baal was a god of rain. Okay? Remember the Baal worship that they were getting in trouble for? It was, he was the god of thunder. He was the, not like Thor, but the god of thunder, rain, and it had to do with fertility. So again, you would go and worship Baal to make sure your cattle or your sheep are having offspring and you're having offspring because you've got to have offspring to carry on your inheritance, right? This is what's going on here. So Artemis in the Greek world was the god of love or fertility that they would all go worship. And that's why when you understand what's going on in, uh, and there was a whole commercial basis around it. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? There was a whole commercial basis of that's why they're there. And so when you get to Acts, remember the big riot in Ephesus because the silversmiths were upset because too many people were coming to the Lord and so therefore people weren't buying the little Artemises anymore. They rioted and uh, accused the Christians and wanted the Christians imprisoned or something because they were affecting the worship of Artemis. What they were affecting was their pocketbooks. Okay? You, you read that there. So this is Ephesus. It's also in Ephesus that Paul had a major ministry. You can go to Acts chapter 18 and 19 and see that. Now, let's talk about verses 1 to 2. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read these two verses to you. And uh, we're going to spend the rest of our time just looking at these two verses. They're pretty simple. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so we're just going to look at two verses. Wow, two verses, they're just introductory. Are we going to get something from them? Yeah, we're going to get a little bit from them. So let's, let's talk about it, okay? All right, so first of all, the, the writer identifies himself as the Apostle Paul. I, 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 to be honest with you, if I was being accurate here, here's what I would say. The writer identifies himself as Paul. Then he says, I'm an apostle. So what you see here is the position isn't the issue. Now, he exerts the position, okay? We see that through his writings and so forth. 
He exerts his authority at different points as the apostle, but he starts off, he's, he's really writing people that he loves, and he's going to start off and says, hi, this is Paul. I'm an apostle, okay, and I'm writing you. Paul states that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That's a true statement, wouldn't you agree? Did Paul choose to be an apostle? No. How did he become an apostle? Uh, well, yeah, Gene said the Lord hit him over the head. A correct way of saying it would be God struck him blind, okay? Well, maybe he hit him over the head to knock him off his donkey when he's on his way to Damascus. That might be true, Gene, okay? He knocked him off the animal, struck him blind, okay? But you see very clearly, was he wanting to be a Christian at that point? No. Was he wanting, was he wanting to, of all things, to be a leader in the church? Not at all, okay? So he's very much making it clear that he was an apostle by the will of God, okay? Now, he goes on. We want to find out a little bit more about who he is. And the reality is, is that, First of all, if you want to read what we just talked about, that it's in your notes. The reference there is Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. But here we see Paul established a church at Ephesus. He's the one who started the church at Ephesus. And again, I give you the reference there, Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Paul is the one who started this church. Paul maintained a close relationship with the church. So one thing you can see about Paul, when he starts a church, he still keeps connected with it. And that's where we get a lot of our epistles from, because he moved on, he would stay with them for a little bit, and then he moved on, but he would always be in contact with them, getting reports, answering their questions, dealing with issues. And that's why we have the epistles. So he maintained a close relationship with the church. Now, Paul continued to give guidance to the church as he ministered in other areas. And a good reference to this would be Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. And there we see when Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, where he's going to be arrested, he stops by uh, Miletus, which is near, uh, near Ephesus, he goes from Miletus to the Ephesus area, and he calls the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, to come meet with them, and he gives them some warnings and some guidance. And you're going to see that there in Acts chapter 20. So this is Paul. He's got a personal relationship with them. Okay? Now let's look at who, who's going to receive it. That's the second part of an ancient letter, is identifying who's sending it, who's receiving it. Okay? Paul refers his letter to the saints who are in Ephesus. The saints who are in Ephesus. Now, okay, let's stop for a moment. Can anybody tell me what a saint is? Or what you think a saint is? Okay, a believer in Jesus, Gene says. Anybody else? What's a saint? We hear saints thrown around all the time. And I'm not talking the New Orleans saints, Okay. What's a saint? You agree with Gene? Okay. I, I do know that uh, there is a part of Christianity that views saints as being somewhat special uh, people, 
and they're designated by the church as saints. And, and depending on which part of Christianity you're from, you either pray to them or you give homage to them or you devote icons to them. Eastern Orthodox does that. Uh, so they, they're seen as special, special believers, okay? Gene's right. It's believers. You are a saint. Now, here's what a saint means. Saint, in its actual meaning, is holy one. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a holy one. I'm not holy. Well, I, I'm glad you recognize that. But you are been made holy by who? By Jesus. And he sees you as holy because of you? No, but because of Christ and what Christ has done for you, okay? All right, so he's, he's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, the word saints means a person sacred to God and usually refers to members of a church. All right, so uh, Paul also refers to believers in Ephesus as faithful. So he refers to them as faithful. All right? And the word faithful expresses that the believers in Ephesus stay true to the gospel. Stay true to the gospel. Now, what do you think that means? What do you think it means to stay true to the gospel? In Paul's meaning, you can understand through his other letters, what do you think it means? Okay, so they didn't back away from that meaning. They didn't add to it. They stayed true to the gospel, which is salvation by Jesus Christ alone. Alone, okay? Everybody agree with, agree with him? Because sometimes what we think of as staying faithful, and sometimes you hear that, is what you do. Oh, he's a faithful, I've, I've heard people say, oh, he's a faithful member. And, and here's what they mean by that. He shows up, he gives, he serves. When we say that's a faithful member, kind of, yeah. That's not what Paul's talking about. Now, we may use that in describing people, talking about who they are as a person, but that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about with reference to being faithful to the gospel, meaning their focus is they're faithful to the one central truth that you are saved by who? Jesus. Not by yourself, but by him, period. You are accepted by God not because of you, but because of who? Jesus. And that's what you have to remain faithful to the end. Faithful to the end about is trusting in him. Trusting in him. You know, I... And, and, and it is an issue of faith. And do we struggle with faith sometimes? Do we have doubts? Yeah, you know, I, through the years as pastor, I've been with those who've been on their deathbed, and it's not uncommon to have somebody on their deathbed say to you, I hope that I will be there with him. And at first, I was like, you're going to be there. I mean, you, but what's going on? It's the wrestling, making sure, am I holding on to the right thing? And yes, you are. You just need to hold on. Hold on. He who overcomes will what? I will give this. Seven times he gives seven different promises. And the reality is holding on to the gospel. Now he's referring to these folks 
as what? Faithful to the gospel, okay? Now, next thing, Paul then gives a standard greeting, and you're going to see this greeting here in Paul's letters. You also see it in Peter's letters. Paul greets his readers with a greeting of grace and peace from God the Father in Jesus. Specifically, that would be charis, which is the Greek word for grace, and peace, which would be, in, to the Jew, would be shalom, okay? Shalom. So Paul greets his readers with a greeting of grace and peace, okay? All right, that's it. We went through a lot of material today. Did I overwhelm you? Okay, next week we're going to get into the divine blessings. We're going to focus on chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, and we're going to talk about what each person of the Trinity did when you got saved. You may not have been aware of that, but each person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, did something specifically in your salvation. And we'll see that next week.